Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, and with video here on YouTube. Okay, guys, this is a really quickly put together episode. I've actually done this whole thing over the last uh, 24, 36 hours or so uh, because the Mueller report has now been issued in its redacted form, and I thought... Hmm, maybe <laughs> given that I did a three hour podcast here on the entire, you know, investigation or on the, you know, the investigation up to the point where I had done the podcast, and I laid out all the groundwork, I laid out all the indictments, all the various things that had been going on up until that time. And so that gave me quite a grounding. It took me weeks of research to get all that worked out. That research has, has held well for me in reading the Mueller report and now doing a podcast about it. And I have to blame you guys, by the way, for doing this podcast because I put up a poll <laughs> on Twitter and on Facebook, on my Facebook page, asking whether this is an episode that I actually should do or not. I've had comments here and there from people over the years. Chris, please don't talk about politics. It's just divisive. It's just this. It's just that. Well, I don't really know how I could be somebody who talks about destructive cults and high control groups and manipulation and persuasion and coercive influence and all of these various things and avoid talking about politics. However, I get the point that it is divisive and that there are people who are very, very ensconced in their positions, and I get it. And if you don't want to hear a critical word about Trump, then this is not the podcast for you to be listening to, because I am going to be quite critical of the man and what's been going on since he's been in office, as I'm going to go over the information in the Mueller report. So that is your equivalent of a trigger warning. Uh, because that's where we're going with this podcast. And I'm going to cover a lot of details and quotes and facts out of this thing. But uh, this is not a, a neutral or pro-Trump podcast. Okay, my own personal position is I believe that Donald Trump is not a great guy. And I am not shy about voicing that opinion. And if you disagree with me on that, that's okay with me. And if you disagree so much that you feel that you can't listen to anything I have to say... Well, that makes you a cult member. That's that's what that is, right? And a lot of people who watch my show are Trump supporters but are not cult members, okay? Not everybody who supports Trump or thinks he's a great guy is a member of the cult of Trump, okay? But the, there's a delineation there, and that delineation is are you willing to hear criticism about the man? Are you willing to hear criticism about his administration? Are you willing to entertain the idea that maybe he's not God's gift to the United States? If you are, then you're not a cult Trumpist, okay? Because that's kind of part and parcel of what goes on with cult members is they're not willing to hear any criticism or any bad words against their cult leader, okay? So I don't think I really have too many of those people following my channel, um, you know, and by voting... 80% of you wanted to hear this podcast, so let's go ahead and get right into it then, okay? That's my little apologia and uh, disclaimers and everything else I could throw out here at the beginning, but let's go ahead and get into this now because um, this is pretty important stuff. 
Oh, yeah. One other disclaimer I do need to put up, though, is that I did not read all 440 pages of the report. I read a good chunk of it. I am very familiar with the material that is covered in it because I had read every page of Mueller's indictments of the various uh, people who were indicted, the Russians, the GRU members, the uh, Internet Research Agency, the IRA, uh, all of that stuff I had read before, right? So I come into this pretty educated on the topic, but I'm not saying here, just straight up, I want to make sure you guys know, I didn't read the entire report, but I am going to comment on it based on quotes from the report, based on what I've read, and based on my overall knowledge of the entire situation. And I did go through, like I said, a good chunk of that report, and you'll see the selected quotes from it. So let's get into this. First off, a um, couple points. What I'm going to do is I'm going to cover just a few points about this thing and go into some detail about them. The first one is the redactions. Uh, a lot of people on the left very leery about those redactions, me included. I was not happy about the fact that we were not getting the full unredacted report. And in fact, I even tweeted out that that was complete bullshit. I wanted to see the entire thing. There shouldn't be any security concerns. Well, fair enough. In my, you know, tweet, tweet averse, <laughs> I, I held that position. But after reading um, why certain of these redactions were done, and most importantly, how they were done, I was um, thinking, okay, some of these might actually make some sense. And in going through the, the bulk of the report that I did read, I didn't feel that the redactions that were coming up in what I read were particularly um, favorable to Trump or in any way uh, kept you know, vital information out. But of course, you know, it's a little hard to, to say about that. I've made a lot of notes, a lot of quotes here, so I'm basically going to read from what I've put here. All of this is posted on the podcast uh, on my sensiblyspeaking.com website if you want to see this, and I also cite the sources that I used uh, at the end of the notes. All right, so first off, here, let me first quote from an NPR article uh, about the redactions. Here are the reasons. There's uh, one, two, three of them as to four, four of them as to why things are redacted. Uh, grand jury materials. Under federal rules, materials from grand jury proceedings are secret, although there are a few narrow exceptions that allow limited disclosure. So some of that is why there were some redactions. Intelligence materials. The report contains information that comes from U.S. intelligence agencies. Officials are concerned that the public release of some of that information could reveal how the U.S. got it, compromising sources and methods that Americans' spies want to protect. And then there is information related to ongoing investigations. And this was the one I saw cited. In the redactions, they mainly they put a little explanatory note in each redaction as to why that redaction was there. And most of them were this point of harm to ongoing investigations or ongoing matters. Uh, HOM, it says throughout the report. Um, and this says here that a number of high-profile investigations have been spun out of Mueller's Russia probe. The most notable one, perhaps, was the case in New York City brought against President Trump's former personal lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen. Details in the Mueller report that could reveal information about other ongoing investigations are scrubbed out of the redacted version. 
Uh, and then there is this one, the last one, which is um, derogatory information about peripheral individuals. Uh, again, this is all from the NPR article. Barr told Congress he wants to honor the Justice Department's practice of not revealing information it has uncovered about people who were part of an investigation but whom it is not accusing of a crime. Trump won't be covered by such redactions, he said, but the Justice Department is, exc is excising detail from the report about people who aren't public office holders. Now, without knowing the details, it's impossible to know if all the redactions littered throughout the report are legitimate or are covering up the names or activities of current bad guys. Given that Mueller's office, though, was involved in the redaction process, and it wasn't just William Barr sitting there with a black felt marker, I'm willing to trust that the redactions are consistent with the special counsel's intentions and that nothing really pertinent or crucial for our eyes was crossed out. Okay, that's my statement on that. So now let's go ahead and dive in on election interference. This is a big topic and a, and a very big, beefy part of this report because that's what the whole investigation was focused on. Was there interference from Russia in our election? If so, what was that interference? What did it constitute? Well, you know, how did it work? Well, we got tons of details here, and they are absolutely fascinating and a little terrifying. Okay, so first, let's put to rest any nonsense floating around out there that the Russians did not interfere substantially in our election process. They did. There is no question they did. And the extent to which it was done is, frankly, pretty shocking. Anyone who thinks Russia is not a hostile foreign adversary of ours is deeply mistaken. Friends don't do to each other what Russia did to us during the 2016 election. And let's be clear about something else, too. If you have the idea that, well, we interfere in elections, too, so what's the big deal? Then you really are a dope. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. If it's true that our country's intelligence services have interfered in the free and open elections of other countries, and I'm pretty sure that we have, that was and is totally wrong. Two wrongs do not make a right. We shouldn't be doing it, and I would never, under any circumstances in any country anywhere, be okay with us, the United States, screwing around with their elections. That should be sacrosanct, and any effort on our government's part to do that was legally as well as morally wrong and utterly corrupt. This is a moral position I am pretty decided upon. So don't throw moral relativism around as though it's no big deal for Russia to mess with us because we mess with them, blah, blah, blah. No. Just no. So, how bad was it? What did the Russians actually do? Let's take a look at what Mueller found. Quote, this is from the report. By the end of the 2016 U.S. election, the Internet Research Agency, IRA, which will be referred to often here, the IRA, it's not the Irish Republican Army, this is the Internet Research Agency, it is a... Is a uh, 
is a group of people that was funded by a Russian oligarch, specifically uh, manned up this unit. They're, all the details of it are actually in the report, some of which are redacted, some of which are not. Um, there was a lot of information about the GRU and what they were doing. This was, these were two separate activities, related obviously, but I believe they were separate. Um, so the Internet Research Agency, again, back to the quote here, had the ability to reach millions of U.S. persons through their social media accounts. Multiple IRA-controlled Facebook groups and Instagram accounts had hundreds of thousands of U.S. participants. IRA-controlled Twitter accounts separately had tens of thousands of followers, including multiple U.S. political figures who retweeted IRA-created content. In November 2017, a Facebook representative testified that Facebook had identified 470 IRA-controlled Facebook accounts that collectively made 80,000 posts between January 2015 and August 2017. Facebook estimated the IRA reached as many as 126 million persons through its Facebook accounts. In January 2018, Twitter announced that it had identified 3,814 IRA-controlled Twitter accounts and notified approximately 1.4 million people Twitter believed may have been in contact with an IRA-controlled account. Okay, another quote. Dozens of IRA employees, dozens of IRA employees, mind you, okay, get the size of this operation. This was not one or two people running a couple bots. Dozens of IRA employees were responsible for operating accounts and personas on different U.S. social media platforms. The IRA referred to employees assigned to operate the social media accounts as specialists, quote-unquote. Starting as early as 2014, the IRA's U.S. operations included social media specialists focusing on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. The IRA later added specialists who operated on Tumblr and Instagram accounts. Initially, the IRA created social media accounts that pretended to be the personal accounts of U.S. persons. By early 2015, the IRA began to create larger social media groups or public social media pages that claimed, falsely, to be affiliated with U.S. political and grassroots organizations. In certain cases, the IRA created accounts that mimicked real U.S. organizations. For example, one IRA-controlled Twitter account, at 10GOP, purported to be connected to the Tennessee Republican Party. More commonly, the IRA created accounts in the names of fictitious U.S. organizations and grassroots groups and used these accounts to pose as anti-immigration groups, Tea Party activists, Black Lives Matter protesters, and other U.S. social and political activists, end quote. He goes on, quote, By February 2016, internal IRA documents referred to support for the Trump campaign and opposition to candidate Clinton. For example, directions to IRA operators, quote, main idea, use any opportunity to criticize Hillary Clinton and the rest, except Sanders and Trump. We support them. Okay, those were directions internally to the specialists as to how to go about 
their specialist operations on social media here in the U.S. IRA Facebook groups active during the 2016 campaign covered a range of political issues and included purported conservative groups with names such as Being Patriotic, Stop All Immigrants, Secured Borders, and Tea Party News. Purported black social justice groups, Black Matters, Blacktivist, and Don't Shoot Us were the names of those pages. LGBTQ groups, LGBT United was the name of that group, and religious groups like the United Muslims of America. Throughout 2016, IRA accounts published an increasing number of materials supporting the Trump campaign and opposing the Clinton campaign. For example, on May 31, 2016, the operational account Matt Skyber began to privately message dozens of pro-Trump Facebook groups asking them to help plan a pro-Trump rally near Trump Tower. <laughs> I mean, what? They were actually reaching out from across the ocean to plan rallies. IRA purchased advertisements referencing candidate Trump largely supported his campaign. The first known IRA advertisement explicitly endorsing the Trump campaign was purchased on April 19, 2016. The IRA bought an advertisement for its Instagram account, Tea Party News, asking U.S. persons to help them make a patriotic team of young Trump supporters, quote-unquote, by uploading photos with the hashtag um, I, IDS for Trump. Okay. In sub, I'm not sure how to, how to read that there. In subsequent months, the IRA purchased dozens of advertisements supporting the Trump campaign, predominantly through the Facebook groups Being Patriotic, Stop All Invaders, and Secured Borders. Collectively, the IRA's social media accounts reached tens of millions of U.S. persons. Individual IRA social media accounts attracted hundreds of thousands of followers. For example, at the time they were deactivated by Facebook in mid-2017, the IRA's United Muslims of America Facebook group had over 300,000 followers. <laughs> They're following Russians. <laughs> the Don't Shoot Us Facebook group had over 250,000 followers. The Being Patriotic Facebook group had over 200,000 followers, and the Secured Borders Facebook group had over 130,000 followers. According to Facebook, in total, the IRA-controlled accounts made over 80,000 posts before their deactivation in August 2017, and these posts reached at least 29 million U.S. persons and may have reached an estimated 126 million people. There were similar numbers in the breakdown on the IRA activities on Twitter. Multiple IRA, this is going to get another quote from the report, multiple IRA posted tweets gained popularity. U.S. media outlets also quoted tweets from IRA-controlled accounts and attributed them to the reactions of real U.S. persons. Similarly, numerous high-profile U.S. persons, including former Ambassador Michael McFaul, Roger Stone, Sean Hannity, and Michael Flynn Jr., retweeted or responded to tweets posted to these IRA-controlled accounts. 
Multiple individuals affiliated with the Trump campaign also promoted IRA tweets. End quote. Okay, and then, like I mentioned, there were the rallies. These guys were actually reaching out from across the ocean to get organizers over here to set up and do activities in the real world that would influence people in the real world, not just on social media. Um, this is actually really amazing. They recruited personnel. They oversaw political rallies from flash mobs in front of Trump Tower to hire, get this, to hiring a self-defense instructor in New York to offer classes to African Americans under the banner of Black Fist, quote-unquote. They actually hired somebody to give these self-defense classes and say it was sponsored by Black Fist, which was supposed to be an African rights, uh, African American rights group. And it was Russians. <laughs> I mean, can you believe this? Uh, to hiring someone to walk around New York dressed as Santa Claus, but with a Donald Trump mask on. In some, quote, here's another quote from the report, in some, the investigation established that Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election through the active measures social media campaign carried out by the IRA, an organization funded by Prigozhin, uh, that's the Russian oligarch, and companies that he controlled. As explained further in Volume 1, Section 5, da-da-da-da-da, uh, Prigozhin, his companies, and IRA employees violated U.S. law through these operations, principally by undermining through deceptive acts the work of federal agencies charged with regulating foreign influence in U.S. elections. Now, the second thing that conservatives are screaming about is that it doesn't matter. No one interfered in my opinions, they say. I don't look at any of that Russian stuff. I would have known better. It didn't affect me. Didn't affect the outcome. Didn't affect the election. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> All right. Let's go over some really harsh but necessary truths right now, okay? One of the ugly truths that this investigation exposed was just how deep the rabbit hole goes when it comes to gathering information about you and what you do and don't like, what you will and won't accept, and basically, how you think. Download your social media profile from Facebook sometime if you're wondering what I'm talking about. Look at the raw data they have collected on you based on your social media usage, the pictures you upload, the posts you like and don't like, and so on. Now, I want you to realize that all of that information is for sale. And it has been for years. Pretty much everything you say and do online is stored in some marketing database that advertisers pay very good money for. And the social media component is just one aspect of what is known as market research, all of which is just as applicable to politics as it is to selling you soap. Why do you think marketing research firms spend billions of dollars every year to figure out what you are thinking and how to sell you things? Because market research works. Advertisements may look stupid to some of us, but not to all of us. We buy the things that are advertised to us for a legion of reasons, most of them having to do with uh, <laughs> what that whole podcast I did on free will <laughs> was all about. If you think the conscious, rational part of your mind is the one making decisions, I'm sorry, but that just isn't true. We know from science that isn't true. It's not an opinion. 
It's not just some fanciful idea that Chris Shelton has. Human beings are push-button in so many of their responses. Why do you think we've developed the concept of triggers? I don't mean trigger warnings, which are controversial and could even rebound destructively because they could cause a person to not deal with or confront their fears or anxieties. I'm not talking about trigger warnings. I'm talking about triggers. The point is that we all have triggers. You can push that trigger. It's like a button, you know, you, but, it, but it gives us, it's not just a response. It's a whole set of actions or uh, statements or things you will do in response, right? We all have triggers and they aren't even all bad. Seeing a cute little puppy in the window at the pet store triggers a desire to protect and care for it in a lot of people. And so they go buy it, even when they weren't even thinking about getting a pet. The thing that's so difficult for people to get their wits around with this is that they're not consciously aware of most of what is going on in their heads. Our emotions come from some place we don't understand, so we just feel how we feel from one minute to the next, and maybe we know why and maybe we don't. Our impulses are not under our control, otherwise they wouldn't be called impulses. <laughs> and our decisions are mandated by the choices available to us in our heads at the moment of the decision and by our emotional investment in those choices. It's easy to be objective when you aren't emotionally involved, but just try to be objective when it's your husband or wife or kids who are involved. There's no way. So that's the advertising end of it. But let's go a little deeper. You aren't aware of it because your brain filters out so much for you, but it's receiving inputs from the environment 24 hours a day, even when you're sleeping. Again, I'm going to stress that this is below your level of awareness. But when someone says your name from across the room, or when you're asleep, how do you think you hear it so clearly and wake up or respond so quickly? Because your brain is suddenly alerting you that someone said your name. Out of the thousands and thousands of words, pictures, and sounds that cross your eyes and ears every single day, your brain is deciding all on its own what is important to alert you to and what isn't, so that your conscious processing can safely ignore almost all of it. But the point is that it's still going into your brain, and those images and ideas are still having an effect on your thinking processes. Most people think about this when they hear about subliminal advertising. But otherwise, they conveniently forget that this is going on 24-7 in their heads, and they pretend that the only thinking they're doing is what they're aware of. So what I'm saying is, even if you think those Facebook or Twitter ads just fly by your vision and you don't see it and it doesn't affect you, I'm here to tell you that Madison Avenue, all the social media companies, and all the intelligence agencies in the world no differently. And there's one final note on this I should mention. We tend to trust certain sources and we tend to distrust others. Some of us just outright refuse to believe or even read or listen to some networks or news media, for example. And we have our various good and bad reasons for doing so. But if someone presents information to you, and they claim they are from a source you trust or from a partisan side you are already on, then statistically speaking, you are going to accept that information far more easily and believe it more readily 
and even defend it more passionately just because of where it came from. In fact, it's even worse than you think. Studies are finding that our brains actually equate facts and opinions if the opinions come from a source we trust or find credible. This is literally the opposite of critical thinking, <laughs> and we're naturally tuned to do it. So it takes real mental work to sort out the true from the untrue and the facts from the opinions. For example, if you're a conservative and you see an article published by Fox News, odds are your threshold for evidence is going to be lower for the claims made in that article, and you'll approach it with an I can believe this attitude instead of a do I have to believe this attitude. When you feel forced to accept something as true, it's a lot easier to find reasons not to believe it. But when someone you trust tells you, then it's really easy to believe it. Again, the Russian intelligence agencies who were placing political ads and articles and comments all over Facebook and Twitter know that. They know what words to use to indicate in-group alliances. Anything that was anti-Hillary, for example, had to be true as far as the conservatives were concerned. And every single bad report about Trump was received with equal gullibility by the left. I sure fell for some whoppers during the campaign. So no one is immune from any of this. It's got nothing to do with the conservative or liberal mindset. It's just that being human makes us very easy and vulnerable targets for manipulation. When the right words and colors and sounds are used, we can be made to believe almost anything. So to say with any degree of certainty that Russian interference in our election process has no effect on the election results is absolutely ludicrous and totally just, I, no. <laughs> no one is going to make that claim to me without real evidence showing me without any question at all that those actions by the Russians, those hundreds of thousands of accounts, followers, everything, had no effect on our election? Come on. I mean, just come on. All right. Now, let's go into the next section here. Collusion or not. To collude or not to collude, that is the question. When you read over the findings of the report, it's clear that when it comes to the issue of collusion, or as Mueller redefined it as cooperation, we now can say the following with certainty. A. There were multiple lines of communication and attempted assistance to the Trump campaign during the election. From Russia, obviously. B. That the Trump team staff were so incompetent that they sometimes were receptive and other times were skittish about receiving that help. C. At no time did any Trump campaign staff member involved in any of these multiple lines contact the FBI or other authorities to alert them that Russian agents and government officials were reaching out to them and making offers of information and assistance. The silence on that was deafening. D. As David Graham from The Atlantic wrote, if there was no collusion, it wasn't for lack of trying. And on this point, let's talk a few details from the report. The June 9th meeting at Trump Tower was one of my biggest issues, and in the end, while it was slimy and suspicious as hell, it doesn't appear from all the data Mueller gathered that an actual crime was committed there. 
Mueller wrote, quote, On the facts here, the government would unlikely be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the June 9th meeting participants had general knowledge that their conduct was unlawful. The investigation has not developed evidence that the participants in the meeting were familiar with the foreign contribution ban or the application of federal law to the relevant factual context. While the government has evidence of later efforts to prevent disclosure of the nature of the June 9th meeting that could circumstantially provide support for a showing of scienter, and that word scienter, I've never seen that before, the word scienter specifically means uh, knowledge of um, wrongdoing or intent of wrongdoing, a legal term for intent or knowledge of wrongdoing. So. There were later efforts to disclose, you know, to not disclose the nature of the meeting that could circumstantially provide support for a showing of scienter. That concealment occurred more than a year later, involved individuals who did not attend the June 9th meeting, and may reflect an intention to avoid political consequences rather than any prior knowledge of illegality, end quote. All right, so that kind of puts to rest the June 9th meeting. As far as uh, the actions of George Papadopoulos, well, that's also something I talked about extensively in my earlier podcast on this whole topic, and I stand by everything I said there. Mueller's report vindicates everything I said, actually. Quote, on April 27, 2016, Papadopoulos wrote a second message to Miller stating that some interesting messages were coming in from Moscow about a trip when the time is right. The same day, Papadopoulos sent a similar email to campaign manager Corey Lewandowski, telling Lewandowski that Papadopoulos had been receiving a lot of calls over the last month about Putin wanting to host Trump and the team when the time is right. On May 4, 2016, he forwarded to Lewandowski an email from Russian national Ivan Timofeev, raising the possibility of a meeting in Moscow asking Lewandowski whether that was something we want to move forward with. The next day, Papadopoulos forwarded the same Timofeev email to Sam Clovis, adding to the top of the email, Russia update. He included the same email in a May 21, 2016 message to senior campaign official Paul Manafort under the subject line, Request from Russia to meet Mr. Trump. End quote. All right, now... The spin on this one by conservative news outlets has been relentless. If you are only getting your news from conservative outlets, I want to point out to you that they are spinning, which is not exactly the same as outright lying. They're making generalizations, citing opinions as facts, and using language tricks to make it sound like Papadopoulos didn't do anything wrong or didn't try to do anything wrong. (laughs) That's not what Mueller found. The only thing that saved Papadopoulos was that no one who he was desperately emailing to set up meetings with Russian officials cared enough to respond to him. In fact, as I laid out in my earlier podcast, the only one who seemed to take him seriously was the Australian diplomat he had a dinner with, who or drinks or something, and he told him all about this. And the Russian, or the, sorry, the Australian diplomat was incredibly the only one who alerted the FBI to what Papadopoulos was claiming. So again, it wasn't for lack of trying. So, let's take a look at the Mueller report overall, and let's take a look at Donald Trump now. Are the actions of Donald Trump throughout this entire affair the actions of an innocent man? Well, 
There are two points I want to make regarding Donald Trump himself and his actions over the course of this investigation. All of them point to a man who, even if he's not guilty of coordinating his campaign actions with the Russian interests who wanted to see him in office, is definitely guilty of something. The first thing he's absolutely guilty of is obstruction of justice. This point is made throughout the report. I couldn't help but wonder what that while Mueller chose not to go for an indictment, I'm wondering if that was because he felt it was Congress's job to carry out an impeachment based on the data he provided. I'm thinking that he didn't want to get the DOJ involved in what could be a constitutional crisis of sorts. Can you indict a sitting president is a question that is definitely beyond my pay grade, and I suspect Mueller felt that it was beyond his, too, in his role as special counsel. Now, I was happy to find that I was joined in that opinion by Yoni Applebaum of The Atlantic, who wrote that the special counsel has concluded he can neither charge nor clear the president. Only Congress can now resolve the allegations against him. He further wrote, quote, A basic principle lies at the heart of the American criminal justice system. The accused is entitled to a fair defense and a chance to clear his name. Every American is entitled to this protection from the humblest citizen all the way up to the chief executive. And that, Mueller explained in his report, is why criminal allegations against a sitting president should be considered by Congress and not the Justice Department. The Mueller report, in short, is an impeachment referral, end quote. But did Trump obstruct justice? Of course he did, right in front of the entire world and on numerous occasions. There was his attempt to get then-FBI Director Comey to let Flynn go, quote-unquote, in a clear-cut effort to influence the FBI to stop an active investigation into potential criminal activity on the part of Trump's newly appointed national security advisor. There was the firing of James Comey. Trump claimed he did this because of how Comey handled the investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails. The only problem is that this ad hoc justification was pure nonsense. Mueller specifically calls out Trump on this, saying that this reasoning is not supported by the evidence. In fact, some of the evidence indicates, and this is a quote, indicates that the president wanted to protect himself from an investigation into his campaign. End quote. Then there was Trump directing White House counsel Don McGahn to fire Mueller, but McGahn refused. The report cites this specific quote as told by McGahn to the special counsel from a May 2017 phone call that McGahn had with Trump. Quote, you gotta do this. You gotta call Rod, Trump told him, and Trump discussed knocking out Mueller. Finally, on Trump's intent, there was substantial evidence, Mueller said, that he found about how the president wanted to fire Mueller because he was being investigated for obstruction. Then there was witness tampering as obstruction. Trump put pressure on Flynn, Manafort, Cohen, and another unnamed person from giving information against him. Quote, Evidence concerning the president's conduct toward Manafort indicate that the president intended to encourage Manafort to not cooperate with the government, Mueller wrote. Some evidence supports a conclusion that the president intended, at least in part, to influence the jury. End quote. Most of this was actually done right in public, too, via Twitter and Trump's statements to the media. Everyone knew what he was doing when he was doing it. Subtlety is not only unheard of in the Trump White House, I don't think he even understands what the word means. 
CNN analyst Ellie Honig discussed the opinions and problems that were brought up by Mueller in his report and also by Barr and Rosenstein in their press conference this week. Quote, it's a strong obstruction case, <laughs> she said. But are Barr and Rosenstein going to bring that case against Trump? Of course they aren't. Mueller was crystal clear about this in the report, and anyone saying that this report exonerates Donald Trump and his campaign of criminal activity is either delusional or lying. There are no other conclusions that can be made when Robert Mueller writes, quote, If we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state, end quote. That is not a statement that exonerates anyone. The second point I want to make is the culture of dishonesty and outright corruption Trump brought to the White House. There are numerous instances cited in the report of Trump literally ordering his aides and staffers to lie to cover up for his actions, such as when he asked for Sessions to submit a letter of resignation, then held on to it as potential leverage over Sessions, and told Don McGahn and also then White House Chief of Staff Rance Priebus to cover for him. This is just one of many such instances, and it was kind of fascinating to see how Trump's more experienced and savvy aides just ignore these kind of orders. It's to their credit, actually, because if these people had done all the things Trump ordered them to do, there would be a lot more people in jail right now. Just think about that. Then there's this tasty bit, which the cable news jumped on almost immediately. Here's the quote from the report. The president learned of the special counsel's appointment from Sessions, who was with the president, Hunt, and McGahn conducting interviews for a new FBI director. Sessions stepped out of the Oval Office to take a call from Rosenstein, who told him about the special counsel appointment, and Sessions then returned to inform the president of the news. According to notes written by Hunt, when Sessions told the president that a special counsel had been appointed, the president slumped back in his chair and said, Oh my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm fucked. The president became angry and lambasted the attorney general for his decision to recuse from the investigation, stating, How could you let this happen, Jeff? The president said the position of attorney general was his most important appointment and that Sessions had let him down contrasting him to Eric Holder and Robert Kennedy. Sessions recalled that the president said to him, you were supposed to protect me, or words to that effect. The president returned to the consequences of the appointment and said, everyone tells me if you get one of these independent councils, it ruins your presidency. It takes years and years, and I won't be able to do anything. This is the worst thing that ever happened to me. End quote. Does any of that sound like an honest, innocent man who's just making personal sacrifices so he can serve the public good as president? <laughs> not to me, it doesn't. So as we've said, the report does not vindicate Trump at all. All the spin and, frankly, all the bullshit that you're hearing flying around on conservative airways and media are a bunch of people caught up in their cognitive dissonance or people who are trying to confuse you with spin so you don't know the actual story. It's not that Trump is vindicated, it's that he's the president, so he can't be treated like any other common criminal. Here's what Mueller said on this, quote, We recognized that a federal criminal accusation against a sitting president would place burdens on the president's capacity to govern 
and potentially preempt constitutional processes for addressing presidential misconduct. The evidence we obtained about the president's actions and intent presents difficult issues that would need to be resolved if we were making a traditional prosecutorial judgment. At the same time, if we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. Based on the facts and the applicable legal standards, we are unable to reach that judgment. The evidence we obtained about the president's actions and intent presents difficult issues that prevent us from conclusively determining that no criminal conduct occurred. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. End quote. I mean, do you need it any more clearly? This, this report does not exonerate him at all. It's pretty crystal clear, at least to me, that Mueller laid all the groundwork here for Congress to enact impeachment hearings. Criminal indictment can also occur after the president leaves office. Mueller disagreed with the argument from Trump's lawyers that a president could not be guilty of obstruction of justice. Quote, The protection of the criminal justice system from corrupt acts by any person, including the president, accords with the fundamental principle of our government that no person in this country is so high that he is above the law, end quote. There's also the fact that you don't indict a president, you impeach him. The Mueller report contains 10 credible allegations of Donald Trump as an individual engaging in obstructive behavior. Regardless of what any of his enablers or conservative spin masters have to say, that information is now in the public record, and it will never go away. Yet here is the spin from Attorney General Barr. I want you to keep in mind that A.G. Barr is in the Department of Justice, and while he serves at the pleasure of the president, he is not supposed to be the president's lackey. Quote, In assessing the president's actions discussed in the report, it is important to bear in mind the context President Trump faced an unprecedented situation. As he entered into office and sought to perform his responsibilities as president, federal agents and prosecutors were scrutinizing his conduct before and after taking office, and the conduct of some of his associates. At the same time, there was relentless speculation in the news media about the president's personal culpability. Yet, as he said from the beginning, there was, in fact, no collusion. And as the special counsel's report acknowledges, there is substantial evidence to show that the president was frustrated and angered by a sincere belief that the investigation was undermining his presidency, propelled by his political opponents and fueled by illegal leaks, end quote. So, because the president, let me, let me actually get this straight here. Because the president was frustrated it's okay that he committed obstruction of justice in 10 separate instances? That's actually your argument, Barr? That the president was frustrated, upset, anxious, stressed out? So he just, you know, tried to do everything that he could to stop Robert Mueller from doing his investigation? Even though there was no collusion, President Trump couldn't have an investigation into his personal finances, his campaign, his family, himself, his organizations. Look at how many people went to jail. <laughs> look at how many, look at the, the cases that are going on in the Southern District of New York right now, all as a result of this. 
Oh yeah, there was nothing there. There was nothing to find. Come on. Here's an idea. Why not just tell the truth? Well, here's the problem. Donald Trump can't tell the truth. Our president appears to me to be a pathological liar. He's raised a family of them. Maybe that's genetic, and maybe it's just how they were raised, or maybe a combination of both. I can't imagine what it would be like to grow up in the Trump household, but I can imagine it would be described as fun. Trump lies as easily as he breathes, and almost as often. I don't think there is any other politician in all of recorded history, not just presidents, who have told as many documented and blatant falsehoods as Donald Trump. Yet his supporters don't care. And that should tell you everything you need to know about their ability to engage in critical thinking. Just like I said many times during the campaign, Donald Trump cannot be trusted. He's a malignant narcissist who only thinks of himself first, perhaps his family second, and beyond that, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about you or me or any of us. His behavior on the campaign trail was that of an uncivilized lout. His behavior since taking office as an individual now, I'm not talking about his policies, are line for line the same kind of behavior that you see in a mafia don or a cult leader. His approval ratings even reflect this cult status, stuck at around 40% for the past two years. No matter what he says or does, his base will never break from him. And that, my friends, is a cult. But Trump cannot do this alone. He has to have enablers, and Attorney General Barr has proven himself to be just such an enabler. I'll quote from a Forbes article that mirrors my thoughts on this exactly. Quote, First, it's important to know that there are three things necessary to make a case for obstruction of justice. An intent to obstruct, knowledge that this obstruction is related to an actual investigation, and corrupt intent. Direct excerpts from Mueller's report clearly show corrupt intent, stating, for example, that various actions Trump took were to protect himself from an investigation or to prevent further investigative scrutiny of the president's and his campaign's conduct, or to deflect or prevent further scrutiny of the president's conduct towards the investigation. Barr, however, blithely and globally ascribes non-corrupt motives to the president. From his press conference today, quote, Nonetheless, the White House fully cooperated with the special counsel's investigation, providing unfettered access to campaign and White House documents, directing senior aides to testify freely, and asserting no privilege claims. And at the same time, the president took no act that in fact deprived the special counsel of the documents and witnesses necessary to complete his investigation. Apart from whether the acts were obstructive, this evidence of non-corrupt motives weighs heavily against any allegations that the president had a corrupt intent to obstruct the investigation. Barr's pseudo-logic goes like this. If the president did one thing properly and without corrupt motives, release documents, give witnesses permission to talk, then he has non-corrupt motives. So the instances of corrupt motives related to specific instances are, by definition, also non-corrupt, irrelevant, not real. It may be the attack on our perceptions and sense of reality that's the most damaging to the national psyche. 
Is this the same thing that Trump does when he blatantly denies something we know he said or did? The most recent example occurred on the day Julian Assange was arrested. Trump was asked if he still loves WikiLeaks, and he said, WikiLeaks? I don't know anything about WikiLeaks. It's not my thing. Minutes later, video clips of him saying how much he loved WikiLeaks and praising WikiLeaks at numerous rallies were on the air. With Trump, his denying what we know we see and hear is so common and silly that it doesn't affect our sense of reality. It doesn't matter if he says he never heard of WikiLeaks. We have faith in our memories and the evidence in front of our eyes that he's lying. So the reaction is a laugh or a snort of disgust, but not a tremor in our sense of, re of sanity. But it's different with Barr, who still has a veneer of truth-telling. Although I don't think that veneer is going to last very long. That article actually was called, Is uh, Attorney General Barr Gaslighting the Nation? And the answer to that question, of course, is yes, he is. Attorney General Barr is an enabler. He is somebody who is an enabling a malignant narcissist. Let's just be really super clear about that. So long as Trump has enablers like Barr as his Attorney General and Mitch McConnell as the Senate Majority Leader in Congress, he will be protected from prosecution, impeachment, or any other problematic situations that could remove him from office as he is clearly and hopelessly unqualified to hold. Trump is just a man, but he holds the office of the President of the United States, arguably the single most powerful position on this planet. I have talked in earlier podcasts about the fact that cult leaders only get away with what they do because their followers enable them. That is 100% the case right now here in America. And the enablers are in the most senior positions of our government. This presidency has been such an eye-opener for so many of us at just how bad things really are in Washington and how deadlocked we are as a country in terms of what to do about it. Our efforts on the left to educate, inform, or fight back are met with direct insults more often than not by people who lack the intellectual rigor to understand what they're doing and who they are supporting. For those who simply hate the left and everything it stands for, they'd vote for their dog before they would have voted for Hillary Clinton. Literally, that is what one Trump supporter told me after the election. And to be fair, I've heard similar sentiments about the, from the left about Trump. So there is a lot of passion on both sides. But we're talking about a malignant narcissist here. This is a dangerous person to give the nuclear codes to. The fact that Trump has that kind of power has kept me awake at some nights. This is not a man who should be trusted with that kind of power. Yet Trump's supporters were happy to open the door to allow him to walk in and take over, bringing his family along for the ride as though the presidential term was the same thing as a summer trip to the Hamptons. Nepotism, corruption, obstruction of justice, these are only the tip of the iceberg with these people. We were hoping for more from this investigation. Frankly, I'm pretty disappointed. I understand what happened, and I understand why it happened, but that doesn't make it any more palatable. I wish I had better news, but it seems to me that we, are, we have a rocky and long road ahead of us. We got to get Trump and his enablers out of office, and we have so much work to do to restore not just our faith in the office of the president, but in our federal leadership as a whole. A lot of very well-intentioned and honest people work in Washington. 
I mean, let's, let's be really bluntly honest right now. They work hard to keep us safe, to keep the lights on, and to keep our country going. None of what I've talked about in this podcast was meant as a hit on them. The U.S. government is huge. And while we like to think there's a Wizard of Oz kind of figure in charge of everything, that isn't the case at all. Not every bad thing that comes out of Washington in the past two years has been because of Donald Trump. His administration has managed to do a few good things. But it's a lot like Scientology as far as I'm concerned. Sure, there's some good stuff there, but look at all the crap you have to sift through to get to it. Is this what we voted for? Is this what we want leading our nation and deciding our policies? Personally, I think we need a clean house, not just in the White House, but in Congress. Badly. I mean, take a look at the place. <laughs> it's not a dynamic working group of people representing the wide and diverse interests of our country. It looks more like a Capitol Hill geriatric club who work only for the money elite and entrenched special interest groups who pay them good money for their congressional votes. That isn't what the Founding Fathers had in mind, and they wrote specifically against all of that. They never envisioned career politicians who would get fat and rich from campaign donations and the public largesse. Every other week, we hear about some corrupt politician getting busted having sex with minors, ripping us off to fund their extravagant lifestyles, or just plain ignoring their constituents because Big Pharma or Big Oil or Big Money has them by the pocketbook. It's disgusting how far we have fallen in the morality of public service. We've got to turn this around, or the plain truth is that the great experiment of American democracy is going to end up a catastrophic and historical failure. That is what this presidency has shown me, and that's why I speak out about these things the way I do. As Americans, we have a lot of work to do if we're going to turn this whole scene around. I'm trying my best to do my part through education and information. I hope that you guys are stepping up and doing your part, too. Thanks for watching, and please always remember this. It's chaos. Be kind. I'll see you guys next week. Leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the show note on sensiblyspeaking.com or in the comments here on YouTube. I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Again, thanks for watching, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.